Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. There were many times in Jesus' ministry when the religious leaders challenged him. They tried to stump him, trap him, get him in trouble. That's because Jesus threatened their power and their privilege. Jesus said things that made him nervous. He challenged their theology. He challenged their interpretations of the scripture. Uh, He said things they thought were blasphemous. And he said things that they worried would get them in trouble with Rome and bring down their wrath on the Jewish people. And ultimately, they didn't like the claims that Jesus made, being the Messiah and the Son of God. We can read about some of these instances where they try to trap and challenge Jesus in Matthew 22. First, the Pharisees, you may recall, come to Jesus with a coin with Caesar's face on it and say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Then the Sadducees come and challenge him about the idea of resurrection. But Jesus always has an unexpected answer for them, challenging their questions and giving us in return kingdom of God questions, reframing the whole way that we're looking at things. And then lastly there, we read where the Pharisees attempt to get Jesus to slip up on matters of the law, and they pick out an expert in the law to ask Jesus this question. Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now this question is setting Jesus up, as you would expect in this passage. Likely, this question is going to be followed by another question. We don't know what it is. Jesus never lets them answer it. Look at verse 37. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 38, this is the first and greatest commandment. Now, Jesus' response here would have been expected. This would be like the Sunday school answer. It's a common question, and this this is the right answer. Uh, That's because Jesus is referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, which the Hebrews referred to as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But notice Jesus doesn't stop there. Before this expert of the law can jump to the next question, Jesus does something that none of them were expecting. Verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. Uh, This isn't uh, second in priority. This is second in sequence. Uh, This is equal to the first. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now look at verse 39 and 40 there. Jesus references Leviticus 19, 17, pairing it with Deuteronomy 6, doing something which had never been done before. And while this Pharisee is trying to use this as an opportunity to make Jesus look foolish, no doubt, the Lord uses it to teach them, to teach us something about our faith. Your faith isn't just a vertical thing. This is what Jesus is meaning to say. It's also 
a horizontal thing. In other words, true love of God looks like love of neighbor. It looks like loving others. And with that, Jesus sums up all of the scripture. And that's what I want us to explore over the next couple of Sundays in a two-part series simply called Love. And today we're going to look at loving God, and then next Sunday we'll look at loving your neighbor. What does this mean? What does it look like? And why does Jesus sum up our faith this way? So I hope you'll join us as we lean in and listen to the voice of the Spirit and apply these two messages to our lives in this unique place and time. Pray with me. Father, we open up our hearts to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Jesus, show us what it means to follow you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've attended Grantham for any length of time, you probably know that I'm a fan of Star Wars. But I'm also a Star Trek fan. And some of you diehard Trekkies are saying you can't do that. Well, this is the world we live in. (laughs) Yes, I can. And one of my favorite characters is Spock. Some of you can relate to this. Spock is a Vulcan. He's from a race of humanoids who are strictly logical and unemotional. But Spock has a human mother yet he's chosen to fully embrace his Vulcan side. And for most of the original series, he suppresses his emotions and operates by reason and logic alone. He's kind of like a human computer. He's the first officer to Captain James T. Kirk and the science officer on the Starship Enterprise. You know, for many of us, we find this more than amusing. And it really is funny at times to see Spock at work in the original series and being so logical and unemotional about things. There's something we admire about that and something that we, as I said, find humorous as he interacts with emotional human beings. But I think if we're honest, some actually prefer that we think of ourselves in this way, that we're just thinking machines and humanity would be better off if we were all like Spock. You know, we're, we're just computers encased in flesh. You know, that's kind of how the French philosopher René Descartes viewed humans. He said, I'm a thinking person. There's that Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. And of course, it's this perspective that shaped the Enlightenment and still shapes much of Western thought today. And while we certainly affirm and encourage thinking at Grantham, we're not anti-intellectual here. For some, we, we want to be careful not to imagine that we're just brains on a stick, okay? You know, the, the, the scriptures, they teach us, the scriptures that are inspired by God through Eastern lenses, that we're more than our prefrontal cortex. It's true. Did you know that the Bible says the heart, not the mind, is the center and the seat of a human person? Your heart No, not the organ pumping blood in your chest right now, but your soul, your inner sanctum, what the scriptures describe as the center of your will, of your emotions, and your deepest longings, your gut, might be one way to think of it, is the place where you love your loves. The Bible says that's where real spiritual change is unlocked and let loose, which is why we can't think our way to holiness. 
We can't become better disciples just by learning more information and just by reading books about various things and various topics. We can't just educate ourselves into discipleship about things that we, we don't know. Now, it certainly can help, which is why we encourage that. But you see, ideas aren't fully responsible for pushing out holiness, for making disciples and producing the actions that we desire. No, it's our loves. Our loves are what pull action out of us. Our loves pull action out. So it's the heart that we should pay more close attention to. That's why the book of Proverbs tells us this in chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it, out of the place of your loves and of your passions and desires. You know, church, knowing that uh, the heart is this important, how might that change things? I want us to think about this. Listen to these questions asked by Jamie Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. I highly recommend this book. You've heard me refer to it in a previous series. He says, what if instead of starting from the assumption that human beings are thinking things, we started from the conviction that human beings are first and foremost lovers? What if you're defined not by what you know, but by what you desire? What if the center and seat of the human person is found not in the heady regions of the intellect, but in the gut level regions of the heart? How would that change our approach to discipleship and Christian formation? So instead of saying, you are what you think, it may be more accurate to say that you are what you love, according to Jamie Smith. Another way to say that is, you are what you worship. It's not a question of whether we love and worship, but what we will love and worship. What will we love with such passion and obsession that we orient our lives around that love? I submit to you that Jesus knew that's how it works. He knew and knows that human beings are very religious in that way, which is why his very first words, the very first red letters in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 38, are these. What do you want? What do you want? You see, two disciples of John the Baptist are directed to follow Jesus, the Lamb of God who's come into the world. And Jesus turns and sees them following and says, what do you want? Not, how can I help you? Or, do you have a question? Or, what do you need? But instead, Jesus asks them, what do you want? Listen, folks, Jesus knows they want to follow him. This isn't a question to help Jesus understand their intentions. This is the first question of anyone who thinks they want to follow Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want? What do you really want? The Greek word here for want is zateo, which refers to desire and worship. What do you desire? Jesus says. What do you worship? What do you love? Again, Jamie Smith writes, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. Because you are what you love. Oh, brothers and sisters, what, 
what we need to hear today is this, because so many Christians think that they're loving God, loving Jesus, but don't realize that their lives say something much different. Just listen to their speech and watch the way that they live. Just consider the many loves, what the Bible calls idols that are at work in American society today. Our career, our hobbies, sports, sex, entertainment, 24-7 news, food even, parenting, yes, obsessed with getting that right, technology, consumerism, buying stuff, war and violence, nationalism, partisan politics, and even social activism. And folks, we live in a culture that contests our most sacred beliefs and practices through its own loves and liturgies. Even good things, and some of the things I've mentioned are good things, even they can become idols. The secular American society says, you want some loves? You looking for life and purpose? Want to feel good about yourself? Try these things. Tired of the Christian religion? Looking for something new and not so boring? <laughs> well, we got you covered. We have alternative systems of beliefs, values, and spirituality. And you don't have to go to a building on Sunday morning to enjoy it. And if you let it, it if you've got no Christian liturgies church, you see, uh, and formative practices of the church in place, if, if the love of God is not your ultimate, then these pagan forces will rush in to fill the void of organized religion. As Aristotle once said, nature abhors a vacuum. Something will seek to fill the space if it's not love of God and of neighbor, if it isn't the Christian faith. And so think about this truth. If inward and outward practices of our faith are not there shaping you, if you don't have them in place in your life, if you've not incorporated holy habits, rituals, routine, religious commitment, and religious community into your life to shape you, even during a pandemic, and maybe I should say especially during a pandemic, then something else will do that for you. None of us can opt out of worship and formation. It's happening whether you like it or not. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Folks, that's because the patterns of the world are always at work. All you have to do is coast through life and you are experiencing its formative power. So we have to actively resist because it's happening, as I said, whether you like it or not. Even more so that we're in a pandemic because the pandemic has sped up this country's slide into post-Christendom. And many forces, many things, many people, many liturgies are seeking the place at the table of your heart. This is why now more than ever we need to say that we're not only spiritual, but we're religious. As I said in our fall 2019 series, Spiritual and Religious, we need to embrace the power that comes from owning and living into the Christian religion. 
Because if you look across the landscape of, of Protestantism, of, of mainstream Christianity, you'll see that whatever it's been doing doesn't have the formative practices in place, doesn't have the, the spiritually formative power to shape us into the disciples that Christ has called us to be. So we need true, healthy Christian religion. Liturgies that have a greater power than the liturgies of the world. And when I've defined religion here at Grantham, I've defined it this way. What is religion? It comes from the Latin root word, which means to bind something together, to hold it together. I said religion is a sociocultural system of designated beliefs, values, behaviors, and practices that provide meaning, purpose, and direction to a person's life and to the world around them. A functional definition of religion for us Christians would be practices of prayer, scripture, sacrament, liturgy, and so forth that have all been handed down to us so that we would be properly formed in worship. I know some have used religion as a pejorative. Even friends of mine do that, and I, and I cringe when I hear it. But remember, the word religion appears five times in the New Testament, and it is by itself a neutral term. You see, because religion can be helpful or it can be harmful. It's up to you and how you use it. And I'm calling us to accept it as a way of shaping us and forming us into the disciples who love God with all their heart and their soul and their mind and who love their neighbors as themselves. Again, Jamie Smith writes, in short, if you are what you love and love is a habit, then discipleship is a rehabituation of your loves. This means that discipleship is more a matter of reformation than acquiring information. The learning that is fundamental to Christian formation is affective and erotic. Now, that may seem sound strange, but listen to what he says. It is a matter of aiming our loves, of orienting our desires to God and what God desires for his creation. He says that our loves are like gravity and the weight pulls us in. What are your loves? What is pulling you in? As I've said before, church, God doesn't need our religion. We do. We need it. It's for us. Why? Because we are liturgical beings. We are a product of ritual formation, of doing the same things over and over and over. And the trick is, or I should say why it's so tricky, is that we don't often see how our everyday decisions are shaping who we are for better or for worse, but it is true. It is true. Our habits are what shape us, and we need to wake up to the idols and the many competing liturgies that vie for our attention, for our passions, for your loves, for our hearts. And we need to resist the excuses that are so easy to make when we can't gather for public worship, you know, because the church is not just the public space. It's also, as I've said, the social, personal, and intimate spaces of the church. It's all the early church even knew. They didn't get to experience the public worship space as we do. But it seems, if we're honest and you look out across the church in America, we don't quite know what to do with ourselves, some of us, if we don't have the public worship space. 
But the, the social and the personal and the intimate spaces, that's the church too. And we need to know its power. And we can, if we'll be honest about our loves and do what is required of us to be spiritually formed into the image of Christ. That is the purpose of the Christian religion, as I've said before. The purpose of the Christian religion is twofold, to properly form disciples to be like Christ and to preserve and pass on faith in Jesus Christ. If we don't have the liturgies of the church and formative practices in place, then we ourselves won't be shaped and formed, and we can forget preserving and passing it on to our children and grandchildren as well. You know, even for early Judaism in the Hebrew faith, which was Jesus' religion, proper religious formation and preserving and passing on the faith was not only important, it was commanded by God in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 8. That's the passage that Jesus was quoting from uh, there in Matthew 22. Here's the text in its entirety. It reads like this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. The, the idea is everything you do and everywhere you go. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads so that you see them and you don't forget. Write them, verse 9 on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, so that everyone will know who you serve. And some of us may be thinking, uh, that's hard. That seems a little extreme, seems a little too religious for me. That it is. But we may think, you know, this is a lot of work. I don't know if I can do that. But look, folks. So we need to be intentional about our faith. So we need to, to ensure that we have religious routines and rituals. That they would become second nature to us. Because this is good. But yet I can hear someone say, but pastor, come on. We're commanded to love God in this way? And I say, sure. If you understand that the loves and liturgies of the world are always at work seeking to shape your soul, conform your mind, and lead you away from real life, then a command is quite appropriate, don't you think? It's urgent. You see, church, a, a, a command to love may seem ridiculous at first, but it's really all about who or what gets your heart and where you've aimed your loves. That's why Jesus himself calls us to be intentional with our aim. And if you're still wondering why should, should we love God, then hear this. It's because he created you for love. And he loved you first. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10, as well as verse 16 and 19 reads this. This is how God showed his love among us. This is how we know that God loves us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. This is what it looks like. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
God is love. We love because he first loved us. Look at that, church. God is love. The scripture says he doesn't just love, he is love. Now, how is that possible? Well, that's the mystery of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. From all eternity, God has been community. God has been three in one, loving, loving, a loving God. This is how it's possible. And this God created you in his image. This God created everything out of love, ex nihilo, that we would love him and know him and serve him and become full human beings. We love, John says, because he first loved us. This love of God, that is where Paul said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This love of God ought to move us and prompt us to love him back. Because here's the thing. The yearnings that you have to love, to be loved, to experience life, peace, purpose, and fulfillment, it's the mark of the creator on your soul. As the psalmist identified, it's a longing to know, to worship, and to love God. As Psalm 42 verse 1 and 2 says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My fellow disciples, Jesus invites us to love God with our whole being. So how do we do that? What does loving God look like? Let's sum it up like this. What does loving your God look like? Well, first, it looks like holy habits, rhythms, and routines. What ways can you express your devotion, worship, and obedience to Christ? What formative practices do you need to put into place in your daily life with your family or with your small group that is meant to focus your love, deepen your faith, and empower you to live as citizens of the kingdom? What kinds of holy habits, rhythms, or routines do you have, church? You know, I, I, I'm often astounded when I, when I think about it. How much time we spend in the world being shaped by the things of the world and the thinking of the world and the loves and liturgies of the world, and yet we only give a little bit of time to God and to our faith and to the church. How can we ever hope to survive? How can we ever hope to persevere? How can we ever hope to grow, to become disciples, and to pass on our faith if we've not incorporated more of our faith into our life Monday through Saturday? So what is it? If you're not already doing these things, and maybe you are, there's some more that you can do to incorporate holy habits, rhythms, and routines that constantly remind you of the Lord and what he's taught us and how he's called us to live so that we might be disciples on the way. The second thing is this. What does loving your God look like? It looks like following Jesus with the church. As I've said many times, we're not closed as a church. We're just doing church differently during the pandemic. Are you engaging then with your church family in the social, personal, and intimate spaces of the church? We have learning communities that meet through Zoom, 
Uh, We have small groups. We have Bible studies. We have prayer meetings. You can start something. You can call up a group of friends. You can get on Zoom. You can meet safely in person, masked and physically distanced. Whatever it takes, there are spaces of the church that are waiting and ready for you to cultivate and new ways to meet God there, to love God together, and to experience life change. This is an opportunity. This pandemic, as terrible as it has been, has been for us and challenging as it has been for us, and, and we don't want to live it again, God wants to meet us in it, teach us things that maybe we wouldn't have noticed or seen or experienced in any other way. So instead of pulling away, let us draw near to him and draw near to the church and let's walk together and follow Jesus. Lastly, what does loving your God look like? It looks like loving others. But that will have to wait until next week in part two of our love series where we'll explore what it means, what it looks like to love your neighbor. I hope you'll tune in for that. Finally, do you want to grow in your faith, church? Do you want to be able to fend off idols and see knowledge become action? Right? Because Paul said knowledge just puffs up. But it's love. It's our loves that change us. If you want to do that, then you have to first start by tending to the heart, the place where your loves reside. Would you let the Lord peer into your heart this morning? so that the two of you can be honest about what loves are really there, what really drives you, where your faith really lies. If you're willing to do that, would you close your eyes for a moment wherever you are, if you're by yourself or if you're with your spouse or other family, just close your eyes and let's use our imagination in a disciplined way for just a moment. Before I close this in prayer, I, I want to take you into a room with Jesus. Let, let's go inside of your heart, the room of your heart. Just see yourself in a room. And I want you to look around and see there in this room all of your loves, everything you love. Get a picture of those things. Do you see them? Everything you care about, that you're passionate about, that you get life from, that you're energized by, that give you purpose and meaning. Hopefully you see those things. Now, I want you to see this. A door opens, and in walks Jesus. Hear Jesus say these words to you. What do you want? What do you desire most? What did you say, church?
What needs to change for you to orient and aim your life toward Christ, toward the love of God, and to keep your sights fixed on Him? Whatever it is, I encourage you to take the necessary steps to love God with your whole being. Father, we're reminded this morning of what St. Augustine prayed. You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We want our hearts to rest in you. We want our ultimate love and passion, the one in whom we get our life from, the one in whom we find peace and purpose and fulfillment to be you. For we know that in doing so, we are returning to the source of all of life and creation. For you created us for yourself. Help us, Lord, to follow you with the church, to love you, and to do whatever is necessary to experience your peace, freedom, and joy. Lord, maybe we've not taken advantage of the opportunity that this pandemic has presented us to come closer with you and with the church in the social, personal, and intimate spaces. And if that describes us, Lord, we're sorry. Forgive us. God, instead of thinking about what we are missing and what we've lost, help us to see what you want to give us and what we have to gain. Make us more religious, not less. Draw us close to you this day that we might love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.